Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage for this morning for the third and final week is Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. Once again, that's Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Let's go ahead and begin by reading the passage together. The Apostle Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. One of the more sobering passages in the Scripture comes towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, in case you aren't aware, is a message about salvation. In particular, it's a message describing the code of conduct that accompanies salvation. The scribes and the Pharisees said that if you wanted to enter into heaven, then you needed to act one way. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, actually, it's like this. All in all, it's an incredibly stunning message. The basic summary of which is that God demands the heart of the worshiper, not mere performance. That in and of itself is enough to sober you. Jesus says, for instance, that if it isn't enough to simply not kill anyone, because if you're even angry with your brother, then you're already a murderer in your heart and therefore worthy of the eternal wrath of God. That essentially disqualifies everyone, does it not? I mean, it's one thing to control your actions, to not do any really bad stuff. If salvation is found in that, in that minimal type of performance, then one might think that salvation is relatively easy to attain. I mean, don't cheat, don't lie, don't steal, don't kill. Basically, just keep the Ten Commandments. That's a perfectly attainable standard of conduct, and that's what the scribes and Pharisees said was required to enter the kingdom of heaven. The standard that Jesus points to, though, is thoroughly unattainable. None of us are able to never get sinfully angry. None of us are able to never experience sinful lust or or coveting. We're all most definitely guilty by the standard that Jesus describes. And that is at least partially the point of the Sermon on the Mount. God's expectations for us thoroughly exceed the standard of conduct that we're able to attain ourselves. And so if we're going to be saved, then it must happen through the grace and mercy of God. What's wrong with us is our heart. It's our inner being, which is precisely the standard that God demands. And since we can't change ourselves, we need the grace of God to act upon us and transform our hearts to be in love what we cannot be in love. This is why it is the poor in spirit and they alone, who Jesus says will possess the kingdom of heaven. 
That's why it's those who mourn who shall be comforted and those who are meek who shall inherit the earth. It's because at the end of the day, the only people who can be saved are those who feel their need for an external source of deliverance and cry out to God for salvation. But if that weren't enough, at the conclusion of this message, Jesus then says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can think of few passages in the Scripture that are as sobering as that one. Because what this passage says is that when Judgment Day comes, there will be some people who will claim to know Jesus, who will say that they have a relationship with Him only to discover that they don't. And because they don't, they'll suffer the eternal wrath of God in hell. They're going to think they're saved. They're going to think that they're right with God, only to discover at the very last moment that they're not. They are self-deceived concerning their own salvation. I don't know about you, but that passage used to keep me up at night. Sometimes it still can't. Understand, these don't appear to be nominally religious folks. These guys aren't the type of people who only show up at church on Easter and Christmas. No, they're very serious about their religion. In fact, they're so serious about their religion that when they meet Jesus, they immediately point to their performance as proof to just how serious they are. They say, we prophesied in your name, we cast out demons in your name, did mighty works all in your name. And yet all of that performance still isn't enough. Instead, Jesus turns to them and says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, that's sobering to realize that Jesus says this to religious people, to people who have apparently worked hard to serve him. <clears throat> now, you might be tempted to say, well, that's because they've sought to be justified by their performance instead of being poor in spirit, etc., but perhaps what's most striking about this statement is that Jesus doesn't condemn these individuals for their lack of faith. He condemns them for their lack of performance. Again, he says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Again, this is a sermon about the code of conduct that accompanies salvation, and Jesus isn't playing around with that. He says at the beginning of the sermon, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And apparently, he means it. He's saying that there is a code of conduct that accompanies salvation. And these individuals don't have it. They don't measure up. So these are people who do at least appear religious, and yet their religion is apparently not the type of religion that Jesus is looking for, and they're self-deceived. Again, that's a rather sobering concept to consider. 
It would seem that it's, ent it's entirely possible to come to church to sing songs, praising Jesus, maybe even teach in Sunday school or something like that, and still be told when you meet Jesus, I didn't know you. Depart from me. That's enough to make one wonder. Could that be me? A am I self-deceived? Yes, I have a kind of religious conduct, but is it the type that Jesus is talking about here? Do I only think that I know Jesus, or am I going to be surprised to discover on Judgment Day that I actually don't know Him? And that seems to be the way that Jesus intends for that statement to be applied. He wants people to consider whether or not they have exercised the appropriate measure of repentance. It's intended to provoke personal reflection. However, there's another element to this passage that's quite sobering as well, and that's the idea that there are other people who claim to know Jesus who aren't known by Him. Apparently, it's not enough just to claim Jesus. Indi Jesus indicates that He must claim you. That's why he's, tells the, he's telling these individuals on Judgment Day. He says, I never knew you. And that's a sobering reality to consider personally. Again, what it implies is that it's, it's possible to claim to know Jesus without the reverse happening. So the profession of faith that we all take confidence in, there's a possibility that it's not legit and that Jesus will actually disregard that profession of faith when we see him. Indeed, Jesus says that there are some whose profession he will disregard. That's enough to make you wonder, again, personally, then how do I know that I'm saved? If the fact that I claim Jesus isn't enough to know that I'm in Christ, then what is? But this is also sobering because what it means is that not everyone who claims to be a Christian, not every Christian that we encounter, so to speak, is indeed a Christian. Like, it's entirely possible that there are people sitting next to you in church, singing hymns with you, teaching Sunday school with you, and while you assume that your brothers and sisters in Christ, you'll be surprised to discover on Judgment Day that Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. What are we supposed to do with that information? How are we supposed to process that? That's the question that Paul addresses for us in this morning's passage. Once again, the passage is Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. And for several weeks now, Paul has been discussing the relationship between doctrinal downgrade and apostasy. It would seem that if we're looking for signs that point to the existence of this actual relationship with Christ, there are several things we could look for. The epistle of 1 John summarizes them well, and they're all captured in a fairly succinct form in 1 John 5, 1-3. The first sign, for instance, is truth. 1 John 5.1, John states in the first half of the verse, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Belief in Jesus' messianic identity is obviously going to be an essential element to saving faith. That's because, as I explained just a moment ago, the problem with mankind is sin, and it's a problem that man can't free himself on his own. Man needs a Redeemer to come and rescue him from his condition. And that's something that Christ alone has done through his perfect obedience in death. As it says in Acts 4.12, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So recognition of one's sin, trust in Jesus Christ for redemption from both the penalty and power of sin, 
This is one essential element to legitimate saving faith. And apart from that expression of faith, a person is definitely not saved. As John says just a couple of chapters earlier, 1 John 1, 8 through 9, he says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if someone's going to be saved, they must trust completely in Jesus Christ for salvation. The second element is love. This comes starting in the second half of 1 John 5, 1, where John says, And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. John is very insistent on this point throughout his letter. The one who has this aforementioned faith in Jesus and is sanctified by his Spirit is going to have a natural affection for God because of the great love that God has demonstrated towards us. And since this person loves God, they'll also have a natural affection for his people for whom he died and who are being progressively conformed into his image. John makes this point repeatedly throughout the epistle. 1 John 3.14, for instance, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Two verses later, he continues, By this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? And of course, 1 John 4, 19-20, John writes, We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The third critical element, which is present in the truly regenerate person, is obedience. And not just any kind of obedience, but a joyful, willing obedience, not a reluctant one. 1 John 5, 2-3, John continues, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. This is the natural outcome of this love for God. If one believes in Jesus Christ and so loves God because of the great love He has for us, then it only stands to reason that they're going to express this love by obeying his commands, the chief of which, once again, is to love the brethren. John points this out as he closes chapter 4. He says, And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Going back to Jesus' words in Matthew 7, this seems to be the critical element that distinguishes the true convert from the false. The whole point that Jesus is after in that sermon is that God wants the heart, not mere performance. God is looking for people who worship both in spirit and in truth. He doesn't want the hypocrites that go out and make a big production of their prayer life in order to impress men or who try to find loopholes in God's law so they can give God the absolute bare minimum level of commitment. No, the fulfillment of the law is expressed first in loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and then second by loving your neighbor as yourself. So the one who makes a claim to Jesus, but who does not genuinely love God, they are not known by him. John reiterates this point earlier in chapter 3, by the way. Consider the relationship in this passage I'm about to read to you and where the obedience that John is speaking of flows from. He says, 1 John 3, 7-10, Little children, let no one deceive you. 
Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Do you hear that? Why is it that the one practices righteousness and the other does not? It's because of whose seed abides in them. God's seed abides in the one which produces the one type of fruit and in its own kind, righteousness and love. And the devil's seed abides in the other, which also produces its fruit, selfishness and sin. This is ultimately why Jesus can turn to those who do not love God and say, I never knew you. It's because the love, that love comes from Jesus Christ. He's the vine and we are his branches. So while salvation is by grace through faith, the evidence of that salvation will be manifest in the believer's love and obedience. The Apostle Paul echoes these three critical elements earlier in Philippians 3, although he packages them differently. The Philippians, remember, are struggling to recognize legitimate spiritual authority. They're apparently tempted to see a group of unbelieving Jews as a legitimate source of spiritual truth. And as Paul counteracts this influence, he tells them, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. The idea of Glorying in Christ Jesus and putting no confidence in the flesh, that goes to the first of these three elements we find in 1 John. If a person does not, A, exercise faith in Jesus Christ specifically, and B, exercise faith in Christ alone, placing absolutely no confidence in their status or performance before God, then they are not a believer. Again, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so if a person does not have that type of wholehearted trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sin, no matter what they may claim, no matter even how religious they are, they're not a Christian. And Paul's point, of course, is that if they're not a Christian, then they're not a legitimate source of spiritual truth. I mean, if a person can't get even the main point of the Scripture right, then you certainly can't trust them with the details. The notion of worshiping by the Spirit covers the second and third elements of genuine belief from 1 John. Basically, even if a person claims to have a relationship with Jesus, if they do not actually love God and love His people, if they're constantly trying to skirt by by doing the absolute bare minimum that they're required to do under God's law, then it doesn't matter what they say about their relationship with Jesus, they are not known by Him. The true believer has a quality of life that conforms with their profession of faith. And this quality of life is produced by the work of the Spirit. So Jesus' words in Matthew 7, John's words in 1 John, Paul's words in Philippians 3, these all align. And the basic sentiment is that the genuine believer can be distinguished not only by their profession of faith, 
but also by their conduct. It's not just one or the other. You can't have works but, but not claim Jesus. And conversely, you can't claim Jesus but not have works. It's both. The true Christian not only claims a relationship with Christ, they also have a righteousness that flows out of this faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. If a person is missing either point, if they're missing either the confession or the conduct, then they're not in Christ. Their profession is false. Well, what's interesting is that as Paul assesses what this relationship with Jesus looks like and how you can tell the difference between the true believer and the false, it would seem that there's another mark that he looks for, and that's perseverance. Again, the Philippians are perhaps looking at these unbelieving Jews as a legitimate source of spiritual authority, and as I've explained before, that's probably because these Jews believe in some things that could alleviate the Philippians' suffering. The Philippians are suffering persecution for their faith, and more than likely they're considering the adoption of circumcision, perhaps not in an effort to deny Jesus per se, but because the adoption of this practice could extend to them certain legal protections that would put an end to their suffering. However, as Paul sees this apparent compromise for what it is, which is the first step on the path to apostasy, he warns them against taking this step by pointing to his own example in suffering. In the process, he tells them that instead of compromising, they need to persevere in suffering. And as he explains why, he tells them it's because perseverance in suffering is an evidence of this saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Verses 9 through 11, he speaks of suffering the loss of all things in order to obtain a righteousness that points to the fact that he's in Christ. This is the same sort of righteousness that we just spoke of a moment ago. It's the evidence of a believer's relationship with Christ. Verse 12, referring to this righteousness, he says, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Again, the perseverance in this suffering points to the fact that the believer is in Christ since they're being sustained by a righteousness that comes from Him. And so the one who walks away, they're not known by Him. They do not have that kind of a relationship. As we come down now to Philippians 3:17 through 4.1, it would seem that there are some who've not done this. They've not persevered in the faith. Instead, they've walked away. Only it, it doesn't seem as if they've flat out turned their back on God. Instead, it's more likely that they've adopted some of these critical compromises. This is how many people handle rejection for their faith. They don't want to abandon the promises entailed in the gospel, participation in the resurrection and, and all the like, but at the same time, they don't want to participate in the price either, which is conformity to Jesus' death. And so instead of outright rejecting the faith, they try to have their cake and eat it too by adopting a few key concessions. These concessions are designed to appease their persecutors by removing whatever element it is about the gospel that's inciting their wrath while still holding on to the rest. And their hope is that by doing this, they can still claim Jesus while not suffering for him. For the Philippians, the thing that offended was most likely the lordship of Christ. And they were willing to blur doctrinal lines to remove the offense of that truth. 
for the pastors in Spurgeon's day. We've talked a lot about you know the downgrade controversy over the past several weeks, right? And and we know that for the pastors in his day, the issue was the inerrancy of Scripture, and they were willing to concede that doctrine for cultural acceptance. It would seem that in our day, it's probably most likely traditional Christian morals. And so people are saying, let's go back and re-examine what the church has always said is indeed what the Bible says. In every case, the attempt is made to hold on to Jesus and the promise is entailed in the gospel while removing part of the offense of the gospel. So what do you do with these individuals? I mean, okay, perseverance is essential to salvation. We can see that. The trouble is that these individuals haven't denied the faith exactly. After all, they're still making a claim to Jesus. They've just adopted a few somewhat important concessions here and there. So what does that mean? How do we regard these individuals? How are we supposed to interact with them? That seems to be the issue that's confusing the Philippians. With respect to those who have compromised, what are they supposed to do? How are they to regard these persons? What do they do with them? Paul addresses the answer to these questions in this morning's passage. The title of this brief series of messages from this text is Surviving the Downgrade. And for the past couple of weeks, I've been discussing the mindset of the apostate, the type of thinking that causes their apostasy. We've seen in verse 19 that their their apostasy comes back to their glory and their God. They glory in their shame, Paul explains, setting their mind on earthly things. And the reason they set their mind on earthly things is because their God is their belly. They're a slave to their appetites. So this has been the root of their apostasy. They're focused on their immediate comforts, not their long-term future. And Paul is sharing all that once again because he's wanting to warn the Philippians against that same type of thinking. He tells them, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He wants the Philippians to know how to persevere along with him. So we've been talking about surviving the downgrade in that sense, by not adopting the thinking that would cause us to get swept up in the downgrade when it comes. Now, in today's message, we're going to explore what to do in the aftermath of that downgrade. What do we do with those who have gotten swept up in it? And we're going to do that from the third characteristic of the apostate that we discover in verse 19. And that's their goal. Their goal. Now, this isn't their goal in the sense that they're aiming for it. I doubt the individuals involved here would ever think that's what they're headed for. But it is the outcome of their apostasy nonetheless. And that outcome, of course, is their destruction. Once again, we see this in verse 19. Paul says their end is destruction. So these are individuals who are probably very much like the persons in Matthew 7. They're going to cry out to Jesus, Lord, Lord, only for Jesus to say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. So that's their goal. What does this statement teach us about how to regard these individuals? I think it can be summarized in two parts, which I think we can break 
down into an action to take and the attitude with which we are to take it. So the action and the attitude. Let's look first at the action. The action is to separate. You look at what Paul says here about the outcome of their compromise. And it seems to carry at least two applications. The first and most obvious, of course, is to warn. That may even be the primary purpose of this statement. The Philippians are mulling over the possibility of compromise, and so perceiving the danger of this compromise, Paul spells out in very stark terms the outcome of that decision. It will come at the cost of their soul. In other words, they think there's safety in this decision. They think that maybe if they just fudge a little on doctrine, then they can have their cake and eat it too. After all, that's what these other persons have done. Maybe they can do it too. Paul sees them observing the actions of these people and weighing whether or not they should follow their example. And and so he tells them, verse 17, No, keep your eyes on us. Imitate my example in suffering and those who walk according to our example. And then to encourage them to maintain that type of attention, he warns them of the danger in following these others. Which he does by telling the Philippians that these individuals might have saved their skins, but they've lost their souls. Their end is destruction. Meaning there's more at stake here than what the Philippians probably realize. This is not a little compromise that they're considering. Rather, it's going to take them completely outside the faith. Going back to the pillars that Paul mentions at the beginning of chapter 3, when you stop to think about it, these apostate Philippians have failed at all three points. After all, the true believer, Paul explains, glories or boasts in Christ Jesus. But what do these individuals boast in? Where is their hope? Paul's already told us, right? End of verse 19, their hope is in earthly things. They've set their mind not on things above, at the glorious appearance of Jesus Christ. Instead, it's in this life. The true believer, Paul explains, puts no confidence in the flesh, meaning they don't place any stock in external appearances. Not their religious performances, not their family lineage, nothing. But what have these individuals done? Where's their confidence? From the way Paul contrasts the the Christian's citizenship with these individuals, it appears that it's in their Roman citizenship. It's in their status in this world. Remember I said this is probably what Paul refers to when he says that their glory is in their shame. He's referring to the earthly status they're trying to hold on to, which is going to result in their disgrace at the return of Jesus Christ. So their confidence is in their flesh. Paul has given up his status as a Jew in order to have this heavenly citizenship in Christ, whereas they've prized their earthly status in Caesar. The true believer, Paul explains, worships, or more specifically, serves by the Spirit of God. Meaning they have this love for God which demonstrates itself in this overwhelming desire to obey God, but in making these compromises, these individuals have not only demonstrated their rejection of the Word of God, They've also indicated their, their extreme reluctance to actually serve God. Their primary concern is for themselves, and that's proof of the fact that they do not worship by the Spirit of God. 
This is something to consider when you're faced with the decision to compromise your faith. Regardless of what you say with your mouth, your willingness to compromise betrays the fact that your faith is not in Christ alone. It betrays the fact that you do not love God and that your chief concern is not to obey Him. In short, regardless of how minor the compromise may seem, the willingness to make it betrays a larger heart issue one which could belie the professor's true hope and joy, and it's not in Christ. It's here in this life. If so, that's enough to damn you. Paul wants the Philippians to understand this point, and so again, that's probably the primary intent in this passage, to warn the Philippians about the danger of making these compromises. However, there's a second application which is tied to this warning, And that's to separate from those who do make these kinds of concessions. Again, the problem is that the relationship between these people and the believing Philippians is friendly enough that the Philippians are at least considering following their example. And I think you can understand the reason for this. After all, they aren't exactly denying Jesus. Again, this is just an incredibly deceptive kind of error because it seems to offer out the hope of having both Christ and comfort, meaning it doesn't seem like a person is giving up Jesus when they take this step. The problem, though, once again, is that it actually does remove a person from the faith. And so in order to protect the Philippians from this incredibly deceptive and dangerous influence, Paul tells them, stop looking at their example and follow ours. Basically, he tries to drive a wedge between them, and the way he does this, of course, is by warning them about the outcome of their thinking. Verse 18, he tells them these are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, he says their end is destruction. They're going to hell. In other words, he's telling them we're not on the same team. You jump down to chapter 4, verse 2, our our next passage here, and Paul begins taking up the subject of companionship and teamwork. He wants the Philippians to realize that this doesn't apply to these individuals. They're not on the same team. So Paul's making this very sharp distinction between him and these others. And overall, the implication seems to be that he wants the Philippians to make this same distinction in their minds so that they can separate themselves from their destructive influence. This is incredibly important. Incredibly important. So far in Philippians 3, we've talked a lot about how to personally identify and avoid false teachers in the church. We've discussed the type of thinking that accompanies apostasy. What we've not talked about is what to do with those who have apostatized. What to do with those who have fallen sway to the influence of the false teacher. And this, in and of itself, is actually an incredibly important part of surviving downgrade in the church. Because you have to understand the people who possess the greatest potential to lead you astray, the ones who are the most likely to subvert your faith, probably isn't the false teacher. It's your friends. It's the people who are close to you. What do I mean by that? Well, let's look briefly at the attitude, and then I'll come back around and explain just how important this action is, because I think that'll help you give some help you gain some uh, further context for the significance 
of what Paul is doing here. The attitude is grief. Meaning you don't look forward to the separation, you do it reluctantly. Now you probably think that when I say this, I'm talking about the kind of attitude you're supposed to take when you separate from the apostate. And it is true that we shouldn't rejoice when someone walks away from the faith. After all, like Paul says, their end is destruction. How can we possibly say that we love God and then relish the destruction of the one who's made in His image? It's just not possible. Not even God, who is perfectly holy and just and full of all kinds of indignation towards sin, not even He rejoices in the destruction of the wicked. Now, I don't mean to say that He's exactly reluctant about it either. But at the same time, the Scripture tells us that it's not exactly something He takes pleasure in. Ezekiel 33, 11, God tells Ezekiel, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. I don't care how much you believe in the doctrine of divine sovereignty and unconditional election and all the dynamics of that, you still have to recognize that there's a sense in which you have to say that God would rather the wicked repent. So if we're going to mirror God's image and love those who are made in His image, then no, we should take no pleasure in the apostate's apostasy. But I'm not talking about that. I'm not just talking about how we should respond. I'm talking about how we most likely will respond when this happens. At least it's how we'll respond if there's any shred of decency in us or if we feel any measure of true companionship with those who apostatize. I want you to look here at how Paul talks about these apostates. He says, verse 18, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, there is something of an example in this passage, right? And so there is something of a command in that sentiment. Again, we're supposed to feel this way. But Paul isn't stating that as a command, is he? He's not saying you ought to feel this way. He's simply saying he does feel this way. Remember, chapter 4, verse 1, right? The Macedonian Christians are Paul's joy and crown. These are the ones who labored with and supported Paul like none other. He he literally bragged about them to guys like the Corinthians. They were his pride and joy. Paul loves these dear brothers, and so to see some of them walk away, that isn't something he takes pleasure in. It's something he's heartbroken over. I pointed this out a couple weeks back. Probably the closest comparison I can think of in Scripture is David's attitude towards his son Absalom. Absalom leads a a rebellion against David, and so David knows he has to go to war with him. But when he discovers that Absalom's been killed, he doesn't rejoice. He weeps. And the reason he weeps is because while, formally speaking, Absalom may have been his enemy, that's still his son we're talking about. If you've ever had a family member reject Christ, then you know what that feels like. You understand that, technically speaking, you're enemies. Meaning that when Judgment Day comes, you're going to be on opposite sides, but that's not something you relish. No, that's something you're heartbroken over. You don't want to be on different sides. You want them to be on your side and join with Christ so you can be friends. And the reason is because differences aside, you still love them. 
That's how Paul feels about these Philippians. These are his spiritual children who've walked away, the very people he labored over so that Christ could be formed in them. And now they're walking away from the faith. Paul doesn't delight in that. He's grieved by it. I mean, like David, he knows he has to call these dear friends enemies, but oh, how he wishes it could be different. And that's how these Philippians are going to feel as well. Understand, these aren't some strangers on the other side of the planet we're talking about. These are their friends. It's the people they've gone to church with, the people they've served with, even suffered with. There's a kinship here. And that's what's going to make it so hard for them to separate. You see, they don't have to be told, don't rejoice over the apostate's destruction because they're on the opposite side of the spectrum. Rather, what Paul has to tell them is don't let your love for these individuals blind you to their apostasy. They're outside the faith, and if you're not careful, they'll take you along with them. You see, when it comes to apostasy, here's the trouble with your friends. You like your friends. You want the best for your friends. Not only this, but you trust your friends. Not only do you trust that they would never do anything to intentionally harm you, but you're also probably inclined to agree with them on most things. That's one of the reasons why you're friends. You get along. And so when one of your friends comes along and says, you know, I've been thinking about a few things, and I think that maybe I've been wrong about this, you may put up a fight at first, but if they push back long enough, I'll tell you what starts to happen. You start trying to find a way to agree with them. You start trying to find a way to minimize their error and act like it's not that big of a deal. After all, you don't want to lose your friend. Even more than this, you don't want to admit that your friend is under the wrath of God. And if you want proof of what I mean, then just watch what happens, right, when a Christian loses an unbelieving friend or family member. Look at how often we'll rationalize their unbelief and find any glimmer of a reason to think that they died in Christ. We don't want to admit to ourselves that our loved ones will actually experience eternity in hell. And so when they fall into error, we often try to give them every type of you know, allowance and grace that we can think of in order to convince ourselves that they're actually all right, that we really don't have a reason to worry over them. I think of someone that I know who at one point in time would have recognized that Catholicism is a false religion and who would have said that the sincere Catholic is an unbeliever condemned to face the wrath of God unless they repented of their self-righteousness and placed their faith in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins. They believed this until their son married a Catholic and converted to Catholicism. And suddenly they were much more tolerant of the Catholic faith than what they were before. They were much more willing to say that evangelicals and Catholics really aren't so different after all. Friends, this is what happens when the people you love apostatize. You don't want to condemn them. Who would? But the problem is that when you start making exceptions for their error, when you try to think of reasons why their compromises really aren't such a big deal, the problem is that you change as well. 
That's because in order to convince yourself that your friend really is okay, or in order to maintain peace in that relationship, you have to rationalize their error and genuinely persuade yourself that their error isn't so important after all. You may do that thinking that you don't you won't personally change your own positions. It's just that once you've rationalized their error, you've still opened yourself up to that possibility. You've told yourself that the compromise is within the acceptable range of beliefs. And once you've done that, you've already taken the first step towards downgrade. It may not be long before you actually end up joining them in their error. Listen, if you're going to survive the downgrade, you can't do this. You can't allow your love for your friends or your desire to be in fellowship with them to blind you to the seriousness of their error. Instead, depending on the type of compromise, you may have to acknowledge it for what it is, and that's a serious departure from the faith, and separate from them. Now, just to be clear, when I say that, when I talk about separating here, I'm not saying you can't hang out with them anymore necessarily. As Christians, we interact with unbelievers all the time. That's just part of what we do. It's part of our mission. But at the same time, you have to see them for what they are and interact with them accordingly. Meaning there may come a point when you need to tell them that their error is unorthodox. That it's outside the faith. In short, you may need to warn them and tell them that if they don't repent, then they're under the wrath of God. And when you do that, it's more than possible that your friendship will change or they may even get so offended that they'll end it. But listen, if you don't regard them that way, not only are you putting their soul at risk for the sake of your friendship, you're putting your own soul at risk as well. This is what Paul seems to understand. Again, he takes no pleasure in issuing this warning to the Philippians. He's not angry at the apostate Philippians, and neither does he delight in their destruction. No, it appears he, he loves these individuals even still. But as much affection as he may have for them personally, he cannot let, their, let them influence his joy and crown. And so as much as he may hate to do it, he still has to identify these apostates for what they are so the Philippians won't fall under their influence. They're not brothers anymore. They're enemies of Christ. And they won't participate in the resurrection of Christ. Their end is destruction. And if the Philippians don't acknowledge this and separate this, separate from them, if they continue to entertain their influence and consider following their path, then they may well end up sharing the same fate. Of course, I know this raises all kinds of questions, probably more than I think we have time to answer here this morning, but let me just briefly address one major question, and then I'm going to go ahead and close this with a word of prayer. First, just to recap what we've covered so far, what we're talking about today is how to handle the apostate. And what we're supposed to do with those who apostatize, how to interact with them. However, we're talking about a particular brand of apostasy. We're not talking about the apostate who flat out denies Jesus. We're talking about the individual who adopts key concessions of their faith while still making a claim to Christ. We may understand fairly easily what to do with the first of these types of apostates. It's harder to know what to do with the second. After all, we can see from passages like Philippians 3 that perseverance is an essential element to genuine saving faith. And we can understand that when a person fails to persevere, that we should no longer regard them as a believer. 
But what's happening with this second group? The one, the one who compromises but still claims Jesus. Have they failed to persevere? Because if so, then yes, we should separate. But again, that can be sort of hard to tell. And so this raises the question, what kinds of issues do we separate over? After all, none of us are perfect in our understanding of the faith, and all of us have sin in our life. And not only this, but the Scripture tells us that we should strive to maintain the unity of the body of Christ so that we can work out these differences, so that we can grow in the faith. So what types of issues ought we to separate over? At what point do we need to say to our friend, I don't think we're in fellowship anymore? I would imagine that most of you would recognize that we should separate over what we call primary issues. Meaning you go back to 1 John and John says that if someone does not believe that Jesus is the Christ, then, then they are not born of God. So if someone says, I don't think Jesus is the Son of God, I don't think He's the Messiah, I think He's just a good moral teacher and I just go to church to learn how to be a decent person, you'd probably all recognize that this is a, uh, not orthodox doctrine and you'd regard that person as an unbeliever. And you could lump in a number of other doctrines into that category as well. Trinitarian theology, for example, or substitutionary atonement, or the inherent sinfulness of man, the resurrection. You deny any of these points, and you deny the doctrinal foundation of the gospel. You can't say you believe in the gospel, and yet consistently reject these concepts. What's less clear is what to do about things like the inerrancy of Scripture or belief in a literal six-day creation. And the reason is because while it's clear that these are incredibly important, one may even say foundational issues, it's harder to say that they're absolutely essential to belief in the gospel. Take the concept of a six-day creation, for instance. There's a reason why evangelicals have fought so hard for that doctrine. And it's largely because of what happens in Romans 5. In Romans 5, we discover that the reason Christ's righteousness applies to us is because of a doctrine we now call federal headship. Basically, God doesn't just deal with us as individuals. He deals with us in groups according to the representative head of the group we belong to. And the way this is evidenced is through Adam's fall. Adam sinned, and through his sin, we all suffered the penalty of sin because he was our representative head. Well, it's the, it's the same way that Jesus' righteousness is transferred to us. He serves as a second Adam for all those who believe. And so just as the first Adam's sin led to the condemnation for all men, so also one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Point being, belief in an actual historical Adam is essential to the gospel. You take away Adam and you take away the theological foundation for the gospel. You adopt an old earth position where evolution is taking place over millions of years, and you typically end up without a historical Adam. Now, it's not impossible to say that there's still a historical Adam. There are some people who hold to an old earth view who still say there was a historical Adam. And that's why I say that belief in a six-day creation is not essential to the gospel, because as long as you say there's a historical Adam, the gospel can remain intact. It's just harder to explain. There, there are problems associated with that position. So what do you do with something like that? What do you do with someone who shifts from belief in a literal six-day creation to belief in an old earth? 
It's the same way with inerrancy. I heard uh, Dr. Sproul say on the radio last week that belief in inerrancy is not essential to salvation. And I would tend to agree with him. Of course, I think there are some major problems that are going to arise if a person denies inerrancy. I don't think it's a stable system at all. But as incoherent as their faith may be, it's still possible to say that you think that the Bible is wrong on some minor details and still believe that it's correct in telling us that Jesus died for our sins. Now again, don't ask me to explain the logic in that system of belief because I don't think it's logical. Right? But it is possible to say that. So what do you do with someone who lands there, who denies one of these borderline primary issues? That's not an insignificant question to answer. Because when you stop and think about it, the kind of compromise that these apostate Philippians have adopted is actually not a primary issue. It's a secondary one, probably a third level issue. Once again, it would seem that they're considering the adoption of circumcision only from the way that Paul approaches this issue. It doesn't seem like they're doing it because they think it's in any way essential to salvation. Instead, they're just doing it to avoid suffering for the sake of Christ. So even though the practice is the same, this isn't the same thing as the Galatian heresy. What the Philippians are doing here is much, much less serious than that, at least from a doctrinal level. And yet Paul still seems to regard this as a salvation issue. Why is that? As I've wrestled with that issue, the best answer I can come up with is that as minor as this compromise may be doctrinally, it is still significant because of what it reveals about these individuals spiritually. Because as minor as it may seem, what it reveals is exactly what Paul says here in verse 19. It shows that their God isn't Jesus. It's their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In short, what it reveals is that there's something that they love more than Jesus. Although they say they love Jesus, they're not willing to suffer for Him. What compromise indicates is a willingness to disobey. A willingness to to know that one thing is right and then to do otherwise. And that's one of the elements of regeneration that we discover in 1 John, isn't it? Obedience. Going back to Matthew 7 and the Sermon on the Mount and what Jesus says about the one who enters the kingdom of heaven. And what he's saying is that God doesn't just seek confessors or performers. He wants worshipers. And if someone isn't willing to follow Him with a whole heart from their innermost being, then they aren't providing the type of obedience that God is looking for. In other words, there's a difference between the person who denies inerrancy because they're genuinely convinced that the Bible contains errors and they're trying to hold on to the faith by saying, yes, the Bible has some mistakes, but the gospel is true. There's a difference between that person and someone who denies inerrancy because it's more culturally acceptable or because it advances their academic career or something like that. Someone who does it basically to look smart. The first person, though very, very wrong, is still doing their best to serve God with their whole heart while believing in the gospel. The other's not. 
They're not serving God with the whole heart. They're serving man. Again, their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with their mind set on earthly things. They're not the same person. Motives do matter in this issue. They're critically important because it isn't just what you say that determines whether or not you belong to Jesus Christ, but what you do. Your obedience is indicative of your relationship with God. And so if someone indicates that they're willing to disobey what they believe to be true in order to gain some kind of present comfort, that is vastly, vastly different on a spiritual level than the one who is simply sincerely mistaken in their beliefs. And so what you need to understand is two things. Number one, again, this is to help you navigate these issues with those that you love. Okay? Number one, all compromise, all compromise is a serious issue. All compromise is a serious issue. It doesn't matter how big or small, if a friend is willing to make spiritual compromises for the sake of temporary comfort, it needs to be addressed. And then number two, not all error is necessarily compromise. Not all error is necessarily compromise. Some people are just sincerely wrong. Now, if they're wrong on one of those primary issues, right, it doesn't matter. They're still outside the faith, no matter their intentions. But if it's a secondary issue and the mistake is sincere, you probably don't need to regard that brother or sister as an unbeliever. Instead, what you need to do is help them in their faith. Try to help them understand. And if the mistake is sincere, I think you can be confident that they will come around eventually. Because again, they don't want to deny the truth. They're just genuinely confused. So, I'd say that one more time. All compromise is a serious issue, but not all error is compromise. Hopefully that will help you navigate that issue. And I know this is rather abrupt, but we're going to end the message at that. Let's close this morning by praying for those who are confused, as well as those who have departed from the faith. And let's pray that God would give us the wisdom to know how to minister to them. Let's pray.